Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 112 of the Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. I am your host, Tino Romero Jr., a.k.a. The Graveyard Grumbler. Today's episode is, it's a pretty bizarre one, to be honest with you. I found it by just Googling stuff like I always do, and it's pretty trippy. I don't know exactly what to think of it, so I'm going to put it out on the air, and I want you to let me know what you think about this. So today's episode is going to be about the Dial to Love Pass incident. Dialov? Dialov? It's a Russian name, so I don't know how to pronounce it. I apologize to all my Russian-speaking people out there that's listening, so I think it's Dialov. Dialov. D-Y-A-T-L-O-V. We're, we're going to say dial, Dialov. I think the T is silent. I'm not sure. But this today's episode is going to be about the Dialatov Pass incident. So what is the Dialatov Pass incident? In 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in Svrvlovsk Oblast, Soviet Union. According to Prosecutor Templovov, documents that were found in the tent of the expedition expedition suggests that the expedition was named for the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and was possibly dispatched by the local Komsomol organization. So this was back uh, when the Soviet Union was still around. If you guys remember, the Soviet Union was kind of a force to be reckoned with. I mean, we had the Cold War going on. The Soviet Union helped destroy and bring down the Nazi party because Nazis decided to invade Russia, which was stupid. But it was good at the same time since... Russia helped, along with America, help destroy the Nazis. Igor Dilatov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, now Ural Federal University, was the leader who assembled a group of nine others for the trip, most of them who were fellow students and peers at the university. The initial group consisted of eight men and two women, but as noted below, one member started the hike but later turned back due to health issues. Each member of the group was an experienced grade two hiker with ski tour experience and would be receiving grade three certification upon the return. At the time, grade three was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 300 kilometers. That's a lot of kilometers. 190 miles? God damn. Grade three was the highest certification and in the Soviet Union, the the cadets, or excuse me, the candidates were required to traverse 190 miles or 300 kilometers. That's a, that's a lot. 190 miles? God damn. The route was designed by Dilatov's group to reach the far northern regions of Servlox, Oblast, and the upper streams of the, Loz, or the Lozva River. The route was approved by the Servlox City Route Commission. This was a division of the Servlox Committee of Physical Culture and Sport, and they confirmed the group of 10 people on January 8, 1959. The goal of the expedition was to reach Otorn, a mountain 10 kilometers north of the site where the incident occurred. This route, estimated as a Category 3, was undertaken in February, the most difficult time to traverse. It's snowy, period. It's, it's winter. And then you're going to go do that shit in, in, <laughs> in Russia, of all places, in February to get a certification. Goddamn. Hats off to you, comrade. Hats off. On January 23rd, 1959, the Dilatov group was issued their route book, which listed their course as following the number five trail. At that time, the Slurvlock City Committee of Physical Culture and Sport listed approval for 11 people. The 11th person listed was Simeon Zolotov, who was previously certified to go with another expedition of this similar difficulty. The Dilatov group left the Slurvlock City 
on the same day they received the route book. So let's get into the expedition. There's a reason why I'm bringing this up. I, I, I'm trying to uh, give you the meat. We already had the taters, but let, let me go ahead and throw all this in there, okay? So they're hiking around. They're curious. See, and I never understood why a group of people decide to, hey, let's go ahead and go venture into the deepest part of the snowy area and let's just look around and see what might happen. I don't understand why that is an actual thing. But hey, people do it. We've had tons of scientific, uh, what is it, scientific discoveries and great expeditions to help further our education in uncharted territory, right? Right, that's pretty cool. So let's get into the actual, the actual expedition. The group arrived by train at Ivdal, a, at Ivdal, a town at the center of the northern province of Servlox Oblast in early morning hours of January 25th, 1959. They then took a truck to Vizhai, a lorry village that is the last inhibited settlement to the north. While spending the night in Vizhai, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. I don't know about you, but just something eating about eating a whole goddamn loaf of bread is amazing. Not not sliced bread that you get in the storm spot, like a fresh baked loaf of bread. Fucking awesome. I love it. On January 27th, they began their trek toward Gora O'Torton. On January 28th, one Mary Yuri Yudin, who had several health ailments, including rheumatism and a con- congenital heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. The remaining eight hikers continued the trek. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for, prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. The next day, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side, but because of worsening weather conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and, de- and deviated west towards the top Okolot cycle. Look, I understand that a lot of people want to do some crazy stuff, but to track through a snowing mountain in the, mis- in the middle of February, in- any part of February, to be honest with you, is not very bright. I'm not going to, I'm not the one to go out there in February in the mountains. Now, I used to live in Washington, Washington State, and they have gorgeous mountains. And Mount Rainier was just a little while away from me where I lived. Beautiful mountain, by the way. Not to mention there was the, the Cascades and the, and the Olympia Mountains. Every, I was surrounded by beautiful snowy mountains. I even had to go deliver when I worked for Cisco. I had to go deliver to a ski resort at the top of a mountain where it, it snowed constantly. And I hated delivering that place in any time from the end of October to the beginning of March because the snow would just dump, just ridiculous amounts of snow would just get dumped in that little area. Now, we know that Russia is a lot snowier and a lot colder than what it is here in the States, even our coldest parts of of the United States. It's cold. And so for them to decide to go track this by foot in winter, they're either crazy, badass, or crazily badass. One of the, I mean, I, I'm opting for the third one. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Why, oh, why you're going to go do this and then wonder that things 
why things can happen. You know what I mean? It just, I, I just don't get it. Let's continue. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain rather than move 1.5 kilometers downhill to a forested area that would have offered some shelter from the weather. Yudin speculated Dilatov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. Either way, it was a wrong decision. You shouldn't have done it. Avert, abort, let's not do this. Why didn't someone say, yo, maybe we should do something better? No, let's, let, let's, let's find out. So something was found. And this is where shit starts getting a little confusing, so just bear with me. Before leaving, Dilatov had agreed he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizai. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Dilatov had told Yudin before he departed from the group that he expected it to be longer. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction as delays of a few days were common with such expeditions. On February 20th, the traveler's relatives demanded a rescue operation and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and militia, which are the police forces, became involved with planes and, hel when, with planes and helicopters ordered to join the operation. So now we're in full panic mode. Where did this expedition get lost at and why haven't they received any telegram or any whereabouts of their whereabouts? We're trying to figure out when or what or why did they go, how did they not get done and where did they go missing at? That, that's, that's what's blowing. See, this is where I'm saying that it's confusing because it shouldn't have been, it shouldn't have been that way. On February 26, the researchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Colot Cycle. The campsite baffled the research party. Mikhail Sharavin, the student who found the tent, said, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. So let me let me reread that part. The student who found the tent said the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. You know and I know that when you are traveling or trekking or walking through any type of snow, you do not want to leave any of your belongings behind because it is cold, right? Right. So why did this group of experienced expediters, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word. It just sounded funny in my head, so I said it out loud. I don't know if this, we don't know that these groups of professional, experienced hikers knew better than to leave camp with everything that's going to keep them alive. But yet, the student who came and found their tent, all their belongings were left behind. Huh. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed leading down the edge of a nearby wood on the opposite side of the pass, 1.5 kilometers or 0.93 miles to the northeast. Why did they walk around barefoot in socks or with one shoe? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, we there's a lot of crazy things that happen. A lot of things can, can affect your judgment and what you might do. This might be one of those instances to where it something crazy has happened and the result was not very desirable. 
After 500 meters, these tracks were covered with snow. Well, yeah, it's been snowing. Of course, they're in the middle of, of the fucking Russian winter in, in a mountain. At the forest edge, under a large Siberian pine, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There were the first, there were the first two bodies, those of Kryn Vonshinko and Doroshinko, shoeless and dressed only in underwear. What the fuck? What, what do you mean they were only dressed in underwear visible of a small fire? Why were they naked with no shoes? They were pretty much, I mean, just in underwear? Yeah, they're, they're naked. But they were found under a large Siberian pine, and the researchers found visible remains of a small fire. There, the first two bodies were discovered. But they were just in underwear with no shoes. That, see what I mean about confusing? The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps to camp. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, Dilatov, Kolomogrova, and Slobodan, who died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found at distances of 300, 480, and 630 meters from the tree. So a quick survival tip. They tell you that if you're lost in the woods to stay by a tree and hug it and don't move and re and search and rescue will eventually find you by a tree. I don't, I've never been lost in the woods, so I don't know if that's accurate. It sounds like these people figured that it was accurate, but it still didn't end well for them. So they died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. But why leave the tent in the first place if all you're going to do is return to the tent? It just doesn't make any sense to me. This is what I'm saying. This was a confusing thing to look up, and it was confusing for me to even put out here. And even now, my mind is, is not wrapping or, or comprehending exactly what's going on. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th under four meters of snow in a ravine 75 meters further into the woods from the pine tree. Now, just for my people who don't know the metric system like me, I don't know the metric system. These four, the, the final two, I'm sorry, the, four, the final four travelers were found four months later, or excuse me, two months later, under four meters of snow. Four meters of snow is 13 feet. These people were buried under 13 feet of snow. That's a lot of goddamn snow. I'm surprised they, it only took two months. But the crazy thing was that they were 246 feet away from the same tree that everybody else was found by. Three of the four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some clothing of those who had died first had been removed for use by, for use by the others. Dubinina was wearing Krivnoshnosh-burned, torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. I, I apologize for butchering these names. I know for a fact that I'm not doing these names any type of justice. And so, again, my apologies to anyone who speaks the beautiful Russian language. It is a beautiful language. I actually, I actually enjoy the Russian language. So let's get into some investigation. Obviously, you find some experienced hikers looking for a level three certification. They become, they're dead and it, they have to be rescued or not, not, not even rescued. I'm sorry. They have to be recovered because they're all dead. See, and it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. If these were they, were, they were on their way to the level three, most highest recognized certification to trek in the snow. Why, oh, why did this even happen? That doesn't, it, it blows my mind to understand or try to understand how. So let's try to find out. Let's get into the investigation. A legal inquest started immediately after the five bodies were found. 
A medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be a fatal wound. Hypothermia comes quick, especially, especially when you're naked. If you are naked, then yeah, you're going to freeze a lot quicker than if you didn't, if, if you were completely fully dressed. An examination of the four bodies found in May shifted the narrative of the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Thibaut Brignoles had major skull damage and Dubina and Zolotarov had major chest fractures. All right. Well, that's not good. Obviously, if you have shit like that, that intense, then you might die from it. Obviously, that's my, now they're trying to say, or now they're, they're figuring that that's what may have killed them. According to Boris Vrososdeni, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparable to that of a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with bone fractures as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. So that's see, this is what's confusing me even more. The way that the, the, the force to, that's required to cause these exact fractures, these major chest fractures and major skull damage were equal to that of a car crash. So some sort of impact that would cause those type of fractures. However, what they're saying is that there was no, there was notably the bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures, meaning that their shit just collapsed and cracked and crushed under some sort of pressure because there was no external wounds showing that there was any part, part of impact. Are you following me? Good, because I'm not. All four, all four bodies found at the bottom of the creek in a running stream of water had soft tissue damage to their head and face. For example, Dubina was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of skull bone, while Zolotrov had his eyeballs missing and Alexander Kolotev his eyebrows. Who the fuck steals someone's eyebrows? Now, I can imagine if you're some, some teen in the 90s and you got tired of, of pencil lining your eyelids or, or your eyebrows, not your eyelids, <laughs> but you got tired of drawing on your eyebrows. You're like, fuck it, I'm just about to take homeboy's eyebrows. Wham, they're mine now, motherfucker. Surprise. My eyebrows now, motherfucker. But what's bizarre is that that Dubina was missing her tongue, her eyes, and part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and fragment of skull bone. They were missing from her body. That, that was just no there. Ya no, ya se fue. ¿Dónde está? But Zolotov had his eyeballs missing and Alexander Kolotev his eyebrows. See, that's bizarre. Why would somebody's eyebrows be missing? What could have caused it? What, 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 see, this is where I'm confused. What injury or what something could have taken the eyebrows? Why the eye? I couldn't understand the eyes. There's animals that like to eat the eyes because they're soft and easy accessible. You can just pop them out. And doop, doop. You know what I mean? So I can understand that. And as far as Dubina, I can understand because something could have eaten her face. Pretty, I mean, pr pretty much. Something could have just eaten her face and snacked on it like a bowl of checks. I, I, I get that. So... V.A. Vosdrondeni, the forensic expert performing the post-mortem exa examination, judged that these injuries happened post-mortem due to the location of the bodies in a stream. So, look, they're trying to say now that it didn't happen or this wasn't the cause of death, but this occurred post-mortem, meaning that after they died, this is what occurred, that something fucked them up after they died. So after they were died, these got fucked up even more. 
There was initial speculation that indigenous Mansi people, reindeer herders local to the area, had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands. Makes sense. Several Mansi were interrogated, but the investigation indicated that the nature of the death did not support this hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible, and they showed no signs, no sign of hand-to-hand struggle. You go invading someone's lands and territories, and they're going to come and fuck you up for you invading their land or territory, right? Right. However, in this case, the Mansin, the Mansi people, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, M-A-N-S-I, the Mansi or Mansi people, reindeer herders local to the area, they, they assumed that because they were in that, that's their hood, they're, they're going to defend it, that they, these are the ones who attacked and killed these experienced hikers. But after interrogation and after several, I'm pretty sure, I mean, you don't want to be interrogated pre- at all by anybody, period. That none of it came was accurate and they weren't able to fully blame it on these indigenous people. Although the temperature was very low, around 25 to 30 degrees Celsius, which in non-metric terms, that's negative 13 to negative 22 degrees. Although the temperature was very low, around negative 13 to negative 22 degrees, with a storm blowing, the dead were only partially dressed. Some had only one shoe while others wore only socks. Some were found wrapped in ships. Some were found wrapped in snips of ripped clothes that seemed to have been cut from those who were already dead. Well, I mean, see, this is what's confusing. Why? Why are you walking around half naked in negative 13 to negative 22 temp? Or negative 25 to negative 30 degrees Celsius? Why? That, that, it doesn't make any sense to me why you would do something like that. What confused them? There's something that confused them. There's something that forced them out of there in order for them to make poor judgment on their, on their existence and to die pretty much set themselves up for failure. But what was it? Nobody knows. That's, what's, why, that's what makes this case so crazy. Journalists reporting on the available parts of the inquest files claim that it states, six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of people nearby on Kalat Sakal, apart from the nine travelers. The tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite for their own accord on foot. Some levels of radiation were found on one victim's clothing. Some levels of radiation were found on one victim's clothing. To dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansi people, Vazra Denny stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Released documents contained no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. There were no survivors. At the time, the official conclusion was that the group members had died because of a compelling natural force. The inquest officially ceased in May 1959 as a result of the absence of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive. Why would they send to a secret archive? If it, if, if it wasn't that mysterious or some, there wasn't no foul play, why, oh, why would there have been files sent to a secret archive? It, you would think that because it was just a normal death or something not suspicious or something that's not a uh, conspiracy theory, you would just leave it in general archive for people to go view, right? Right, but this wasn't. This was put away. 
1997, it was revealed that the negatives from Krzysztof Monshenko's camera were kept in the private archive of one of the investigators, Lev Ivanov. The film material was donated by Ivanov's daughter to the Dilatov Foundation. The Diaries of Hiking Party fell into Russia's public domain in 2009. On see, and that's another thing. Why would you keep secret things and and think what what don't you want people to see? I understand that maybe the photos of the of the people deceased might be too gruesome, or well, I understand that something somehow that there was something that they didn't want them to see. But all in all, there was something more that they did not want the public to see. So why else would somebody keep it put away in their secret archives if they didn't want them, if they didn't want it to be go, you know, if they just want to keep it hush hush. On April 12th, 2018, Zolotrov's remains were exhumed on the initiative of journalists of the Russian tabloid newspaper Kamalsaklava Prava. Contradictory results were obtained. One of the experts said that the character of the injuries resembled a person knocked down by a car and the DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. Uh-oh. The DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. They switched the bodies. The body, that was not the same body that was there. They had a, they got a different body, yaddy, 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 yaddy. But why? Why did they do that? This is like kind of like where the alleged JFK body was switched out to prove that he was still alive, that he was never shot. But when you, when you pull it out and you have DNA evidence that doesn't match any of his living relatives, that doesn't that make you, why would they change the whole ass body? Why, why? I just, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. In addition, it turned out that Zolotov's name was not on the list of those buried at the Ivan Shkol Cemetery. Nevertheless, the reconstruction of the face from the exhumed skull matched postware photographs of Zolotov. Although journalists expressed suspicions that another person was hiding under Zolotov's name after World War II. Dun 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 dun. I know, I know, I know. I'm trying to make CSI music, but that's I, I'm pretty sure I missed the mark. But somebody could have been using his alias, his AKA, under Zolotrov's name after World War II. Again, we had a lot of Nazis and a lot of um, of uh, people who decided to t- tuck tail and run and try to get up new names. So they won't get prosecuted for, for war crimes. But what if one of these guys that went and decided to take Zolotov's name was actually the individual and that's why none of his DNA matches? Okay, that makes sense. In February 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation into the incident, although only three possible explanations were being considered. An avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane. The possibility of a crime had been discounted. The possibility of a crime had been discounted. Huh. So let's get into some explanations. 12-year-old Yuri Kunskovich, who later became the head of the Yakonsturberg-based Dilatov Foundation, attended five of the hikers' funerals. He recalled that their skin had a deep brown tan. A deep brown tan. A deep brown tan in the middle of February in the mountains in Russia. Another group of hikers about 50 kilometers, 31 miles south of the incident, reported that they saw strange orange spheres. Spheres. They saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. Another group of hikers about 31 miles south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. Strange 
orange spheres. What do you think that could be? Aliens, right? That's what I'm thinking. See, this is why this is why it's tripping me out. What could have caused this and why Oh, why was nothing else determined? Why weren't these group of hikers brought in for interrogation or investigation or questioning the time of the incident? I'm going to put the habeas corpus, I'm going to put the system on trial. <laughs> Similar spheres were observed in Ivdal and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March 1959 by various independent witnesses, including the meteorology services and the military. These sightings were not noted in the 1959 investigation and the various witnesses came forward years later. Why was this not mentioned in the original investigation? Why? You would think that this would be a big part of the investigation where you have orange spheres where multiple people across the area can notice and can see this. But it was kept out of the initial investigation and of course witnesses Came out years later talking about, yeah, I saw that shit, homie. Let me tell, let me tell you something, homie. That shit right there, homie. That shit was big, homie. Looked like a big orange sphere, homie. I got scared, homie. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you would think that that would be one of the most important things when multiple people witness it, even the military and the meteorology service. Wouldn't that have been kind of like, hey? What if we put one and three together? Maybe we make 17, right? You would think. Look, I'm not a math magician. Don't at me, all right? Anatoly Gushchin summarized his research in the book, The Price of State Secrets in Nine Lives. Some researchers criticized the work for its concentration on the speculative theory of a Soviet secret weapon experiment, but its publication led to public discussion stimulated by interest in the paranormal. But its publication led to public discussion Stimulated by interest in the paranormal. Yeah. If you can't, if you have something unexplained and it killed eight people, you start to worry and you start to wonder, well, fuck, what might have actually happened? Indeed, many of those who had remained silent for 30 years reported new facts about the accident. One of them was the former police officer, Lev Ivanov, who led the official inquest in 1959. When you have your own law enforcement keeping secrets and not speaking about it, then there's some shit that you should worry about that some shit is pretty dangerous shit that you're trying to hide from people. Why? I understand that there's certain things that need to be kept quiet and you don't want to talk about, but if it's going to help bring closure and, and close the case and be prepared for something so it won't happen like this in the future, why not do it? Why do you insist on keeping quiet. This is how shit goes bad. In 1990, he published an article that, include, that included his admission to the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. And listen to, what, listen to what I just said. In 1990, he published an article that included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. Boy, I tell you. He also stated that after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional off officials to dismiss this claim. This is why nobody trusts the government. Look, I'm not telling that I don't trust the government. What I'm telling you is that this is one of the reasons why we can't trust the government when government heads, people higher ranking, are giving out direct orders to keep this shit on the hush. Don't worry about it. This doesn't pertain to you. 
This is nothing that this is just a dream. But this cop is reporting that he was told directly from high ranking regional officials to dismiss the claim of flying spheres. You see what I mean? This boy, I tell you, aliens, aliens, it's fucking aliens. Am I right? Brian, right there, you on the left. Chewbox, right there on the right. It's aliens, right? I'm right, right, right. Confirm that I'm right. In 2000, a regional television company produced the documentary film, The Mystery of Dilatov Pass, with the help of the film crew. Oh my gosh. A Yakaterberg writer, Anna Matayava, published a docudrama novella of the same name. A large part of the book includes broad quotations from the official case, diaries of victims, interviews with searchers, and other documentaries collected by the filmmakers. The narrative line of the book details the everyday life and thoughts of a modern woman, an alter ego of the author herself, who attempts to resolve the case. It's aliens. Despite its fictional narrative, Matava's book remains the largest source of documentary materials ever made available to the public regarding this incident. Also, the pages of the case files and other documentaries are gradually being published on a web forum for enthusiastic researchers. Put it all out. Put it all out in the open so somebody can figure out what the fuck is going on. The Dilatov Foundation was founded in 1999 at Jakenturberg with the help of Ural State Technical University led by Yuri Kontsevich. I don't know how to pronounce any of these names. I apologize. The foundation's stated aim is to continue investigation of the case and to maintain the Dilatov Museum to preserve the memory of the dead hikers. On July 1st, 2016, a memorial plaque was inaugurated at the Solomusk in Eurosporm region dedicated to Yuri Yudin, the sole survivor of the expedition group, who died in 2013. Remember, Yuri was the one who went because he had bad legs. He said, yo, I can't do this shit. My knees are hot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my knees are cold. I need to go get hot. I, I, can't, I can't be fucking around with all you young bucks out here. So let's get into some theories. Because obviously there are some theories. I have my theory I think it's aliens. Again, I, I, I don't want to believe in aliens, but at the same time, I believe in aliens because we cannot be the only people in this world, in this universe. On July 11, 2020, Andrei Koryakov, deputy head of the Ural's Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office, announced an avalanche to be the official cause of death for the Dilatov Group in 1959. Later, independent computer stimulation and analysis by Swiss researchers also suggest avalanche as the cause. Summarizing Kurokov's report in the New Yorker, Douglas Preston writes, Bullshit! I call bullshit! Objection, Your Honor. Objection. Grounds? Because this is bullshit, and I'm not going to have this put out here on my podcast without telling the truth. How? Okay, remember, if, if you recall, what they, told, what they said earlier was that there was, their, their, their insides were crushed, right? Their innards, their chest, and their skull were fucking crushed. But they had no outside damage. There was no wounds on the outside. Now, if an avalanche would hit them, is it possible? I've never been into an avalanche. Somebody who lives out in the north coldness of, of the world. Can you, can you confirm to me that if you're crushed under an avalanche, would that crush your chest and collapse your skull without any sort of external wounds? You can email me, graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. You can hit me up on Instagram, graveyardgrumblerpodcast, and you can just let me know. Because I don't think that the avalanche was the actual cause that everybody had died or everybody was suffered. You had one person running around butt-ass naked with one shoe on talking about, look it, look it, I'm skipping. 
That doesn't it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense to me though. So this is what Douglas Peterson wrote in uh, regarding in the New York Times. The most appealing aspect of Kurlikov's scenario is that Dolotov party's actions no longer seem irrational. The snow slab, according to Green, would probably have made loud cracks and rumbles as it fell across the tent, making an avalanche seem imminent. Koryakov noted that although the skiers made an error in the placement of their tent, everything they did subsequently was textbook. They conducted an emergency evacuation to the ground that would be safe from an avalanche. They took shelter in the woods. They started a fire. They dug a snow cave. Had they been less experienced, they might have remained near the tent, dug it out, and survived. But avalanches are by far the biggest risk in the mountains in winter, and the more experience you have, the more you fear them. The skiers' expertise doomed them. Reviewing a sensationalist Yeti hypothesis, American skeptic author Benjamin Radforth suggests an avalanche as more plausible. So that the group woke up in panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that the avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in the tent than risk being buried alive in under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow oncoming snow. In the darkness of the night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent, recover their clothing since the danger had passed, but it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose body was most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under 13 feet of snow, more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. Dubina's tongue was likely removed by the scavengers and or an ordinary predation. Or predation, predation, predation. Evidence contradicting the avalanche theory includes... Now let's let's see this, and this is what I, this is what we're encountering. This is what I don't believe. This is contradicting the avalanche theory. I think the avalanche theory was pretty much a shut up and just deal with it because we don't know what actually happened, and we don't want to tell you it was aliens. We don't want to tell you that because we're going to cause a nationwide panic in Russia, and Mother Russia cannot have that comrade. I'm sorry, that was a horrible Russian accent. My bad. So let's listen to some of the contradicting theories of the avalanche. The location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. Boom, roasted. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow. Had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. That's my thoughts exactly. If there was an avalanche, everything would have been completely covered in fucking snow. These people would have been completely broken up and torn up, like their limbs and shit. They wouldn't have been able to find them in two months. Had it been an avalanche, they would have been buried under feet of snow. Mind you, not only the initial snow from the avalanche, but the continuous snow that would cover, that would continue covering the snow that buried the, uh, the original or the bodies that were found two months later under 13 feet of snow. It would have been a completely different way of death or injuries had there been an avalanche. And there would have been visible signs of the, of the avalanche's destructive path. It wouldn't have just said, peekaboo, I'm here, motherfucker. It just doesn't work that way. We've seen avalanches on TV. That's about as close as I want to be to one. But I've seen avalanches on TV, and they are insane. 
Matter of fact, you know what? When I was driving up into Washington, when I was going through, we had got hit with the heavy snow up in the mountains. And we were driving, and I was driving through, and where this camp, this ski resort was at, it was right at the Rainier area. And there was this place that was that was blocked out. I mean, it was all the way from the top, all the way pretty much down to the bottom. It wasn't nowhere near me. It was it was like it was like a few miles away from me. And then they were they, they were there was an, uh, uh, what was called a, a snow something relief effort or some shit to where they would cause an avalanche to knock off some of the snow to prevent an avalanche, which is weird. And when I saw some of it hit, it the snow goes. And it, you can hear the trees and everything cracking and breaking as the, as the snow barrels through the path that it's going to barrel through. So I don't think an avalanche actually happened. It just doesn't make any sense. It's aliens, I'm fucking telling you. Over 100 expeditions to the region had been held since the incident, and none of them ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which has significantly steeper slopes and cornices, were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions. Boom. I'm telling you, it wasn't an avalanche. An analysis of the terrain and the slopes showed that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way to the area, its path would have gone past the tent. The tent had collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. Dilatov was an experienced skier, and the much older Zolotarov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. That's what I'm saying. That's why I mentioned earlier, these people were going up to their level, level three certification, not their level one Zumba, level three certification, they, these guys were already very experienced. They know better than to go sleep in the path of a beast in the fucking destructive force of mother nature. You're not going to go put your tent if you're experienced. Now, had it been me? Now, had it been me, Chewbacca, or Brian? Oh, we all would agree. This looks like a mighty fine place right here. You're damn right, Tino. This looks good. Mm-hmm. We're a country. Let's lay down right here in the path of this snow up this side of the mountain, down here in the middle where an avalanche hits, we all gonna die. Sounds good. Let's set up the tents. But because we're, we're not experienced, we're not even level one Zuber instructors. We're, we're not even that. We're, we're, so let alone trying to go to level three master skier expeditionist. We're, we're, that's, that's not, that's not, that, that's what I'm saying. This, this is too much, there's too much experience for them to have get fucked up by an avalanche. There's no way. Footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people running in panic from either real or imagined danger. All the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at normal pace. It, just, it doesn't make sense. The, the evidence that we're reading about and what, what Russian officials want you to believe are not the same. In 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition was made to the site, and after investigations, they proposed that a violent cata Catabotic wind was a plausible explanation for the incident. Catabotic winds are somewhat rare events and can be extremely violent. The fuck is a catabotic wind? Let's look that up. A, a catabotic wind is a drainage wind, a wind that carries high density air from a higher elevation down, to, down a slope under the force of gravity. Such winds are sometimes also called fall winds. The spelling catab catabotic winds is also used. So, according, that's really rare, but it's really dangerous. 
apparently it, it, it has really strong forces and it has a lot of different things that can fuck you up. All right. But can be extremely violent. They were implicated in a 1978 case at Honoris Mountain in Sweden where eight hikers were killed and one was severely injured in the aftermath of a catabotic wind. The topography of these locations was noted to be very similar according to the expedition, but it's not in the same region. A sudden catabotic wind could have made it impossible to remain in the tent and the most rational course of action would have been for the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter behind the tree line. On... Top of the tent, there were also a torch left turned on, possibly left there intentionally so the hikers could find their way back to the tent. Once the wind subsided, the expedition proposed that the group of hikers constructed two biovac shelters, one of which collapsed, leaving four of the hikers buried with the, sev- the severe injuries observed. I don't, I don't believe that either. I believe it was aliens. Another hypoth- hypothesis popularized by Donnie Icar's 2000 book, 2013 book, Dead Mountain is that wind going around Colat's cycle created a Carmon Vortex Street, which can produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in human infrasound. I read about that shit. Military used that shit. According to Icar's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the Halatachal Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. All right. But what if, now hear me out, what if aliens were controlling the infrasound? What, what if? What if they were putting these high-pitched sounds into this area to, to, to throw off all of these hikers and have them all confused and then fucked them up? Tell me I'm wrong. Icar claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure but in the darkness would have been unable to return to their shelter. I'm telling you, fucking aliens. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the result of their stumbling over the edge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. But that still, it showed no external wounds. Now, what if a polar bear had fucked them all up? Oh my gosh. What if it was a polar bear controlled by the goddamn aliens? I solved it. (laughs) Alien-controlled polar bears. What if? No, I'm just kidding. But what, what would happen if, if, the, if, uh, if aliens, if this polar bear or a polar bear would have actually followed these guys, chased them out, and fucked them up? I mean, you think about it. You, the polar bears are huge animals. They, they can break ice with their front paw legs. Think about it. They can break ice, like several feet of ice with their paw legs. I, I don't, I don't, I don't. Could you imagine... A, ba- a polar bear slamming his front paw legs onto your chest or your skull, something's going to give, right? Right. Okay. In one speculation, the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet, a Soviet parachute mine exercise. This theory alleges that hikers woken by loud explosions fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to return for supply retrieval. After some members froze to death attempting to endure the bombardment, others come commandeered their clothing only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. All right. Military exercises in the middle of nowhere. All right. I'll I'll, I'll give it. But what if they were testing these on purpose? This wasn't an accident. There are indeed records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Parachute mines detonate while still in the air rather than upon striking the Earth's surface and produce signature injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with relatively little external trauma. 
The theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers and allegedly photographed by them, potentially military aircraft or descending parachute mines. Now, okay, that theory is a little more believable. It might not have been aliens, but what if it was? I mean, they, they, the military purposely or unknowingly will, will let you decide. Throw these parachute mines in the air all across the, the, the open air down to the ground, and these things are exploding before they even hit the ground. Now, the force of a mine, not a mime, a mine is intensely, intensely severe. It, it would make sense, the glowing, they were exploding in the air, the orange, the explosion. Okay, I will give you that. They would also cause, you know, the, the trauma of the force of an explosion can and have caused damage. All right. Military exercises, but what if it was on purpose? You know what I mean? I mean, think about it. These, they, they had to go through all of these legitimate things to get this expedition even approved. Because they're getting their level three certification, not their level one Zumba certificate but a level three master expeditionist in skiing and hiking in this traverse, not atmosphere, but hiking area, this mountainside. So they were all experienced. You don't think the government knew that they were out there? This was controlled by Mother Russia. Mother Russia, comrade. Mother Russia knew of everything. They knew of everything that was going to be on. So you know very well that this was handed over to the government. No doubt about it, meaning that they knew for a fact that these people were out there. This theory, among others, uses scavenging animals to explain Dubina's injuries. Some speculate that the bodies were unnaturally manipulated on the basis of characteristic liver mortis. Liver mortis? Oh, liver mortis making markings discovered during an autopsy, as well as burns to the hair and skin. Photographs of the tent allegedly show that it was erected incorrectly, something that the experienced hikers were unlikely to have done. Oh, my gosh. There was burns. Remember, that these guys were burned. They had burning on, on certain parts of their body. But I don't, I don't know. You, you guys let me know. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. Graveyardgrumbler, Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram. Let me know. A similar theory, theory alleges the testing of radiological weapons, and it's based partly on the discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing, as well as the description of the bodies by relatives as having orange skin and gray hair. So if you go to certain parts of the, of the good old USA out in the, in the United States here in, in America, there are certain parts that you are prohibited from going. You are forbidden to go because of radioactivity. Now, mind you, what, mind, get it? <laughs> no, too soon, too soon. What, the, 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 there was radio, uh, there was radiation detected on some of the clothing of some of the hikers that were found, that, that were recovered. So, if, if the military was, ex, was experimenting with all of these uh, uh, weapons, so you don't think that they decided to try nuclear weapons? Of course they did. They, they were trying biological war, warfare. And so, no, it's not biological. It's uh, radioaction. I, I can't think of the name right now. I'm, 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 my brain's a little confused on this right now. My, my head's like a pretzel. So if they are practicing or, or testing out weapons, you don't think they have tested out uh, radioactivity or, or you know stuff like that? Of course they haven't. By them not coning it off or not quarantining and say, hey, you can't go here. You shall not pass. They went ahead and la, 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 la. I taste metal in my mouth. Of course, you know, you, you go into a section that's contaminated, you're going to get fucked up, bottom line. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all, not just some of the hikers and equipment, and the skin and hair discoloration can be explained by a natural process of mummification after three months 
of exposure to the cold and wind. I don't believe it. The initial suppression by Soviet authorities of files describing the group's disappearances is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up, but the concealment of information about domestic incidents was, strand, was standard procedure in the USSR and thus far from peculiar, 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 God damn. And by the late 1980s, all dilatol files had been released in some manner. Yeah, but how long did it, this happened in 1959 and barely in 1980s it was, it was open and released. You don't think they taken out what, what they, they don't think they had taken out what they wanted to be removed. Fuck, come on now. International Science Times posted that the hikers' deaths were caused by hypothermia, which can induce a behavior known as paradoxical undressing in which hypothermic subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. It is undisputed that six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia. It, boom, it's, it, they didn't die of hypothermia. However, others in the groups appeared to have acquired additional clothing from those who had already died, which suggests that they were of a sound mind enough to try and add layers. I don't think it was hypothermia. I don't think it was an avalanche. Weapons testing, parachute mines, uh, maybe, but I believe that it was something more sinister. I believe that it was something that they want to cover up because they don't want to admit and cause world mass hysteria. Do I believe it was aliens? I possibly do believe it was aliens. It, it, was it the Yeti? It wasn't the Yeti because the damages weren't gruesome enough. They were, they were there, but they weren't there. If You know what I mean? And plus, you know, having someone's face eaten off is it's common. You have little little animals in there that's going to take a little munchy munch here and there. So it's not it's not uncommon for that to happen. Graveyard Grumbler's final thought. It was look, I'm going to tell you that it was aliens. But if you don't believe me, look into this case. There's a lot more information. I just didn't want to go longer than what I am. I'm just about at an hour and I, I didn't want to keep going on and beating the dead horse. But I mean, you, you start experiencing or start witnessing spheres and globes and orbs in the sky. And then people are running around with, with underwear, one shoe, their tent is ripped open from the inside. I do believe that the infrasound, infrasound was something that had been used to confuse them and to get them out of whatever chain or uh, state of mind that they were in. I, I do believe that because it's, been, it's common practice that... Let me think about it. When, when you hear people talk about that they encountered uh, aliens, one of the biggest things that they say is that they hear this loud ear piercing thing and, and their head is hurting, right? Right. That's infrasound. That shit is, is, is commonly reported. I heard a loud beeping sound, a, a high-pitched sound, and it was affecting my head. I couldn't think straight. It's not, it's, not, it's not unusual for people to report that. So in this case, what if this was in a larger scale? Think about it. This is in, this is in February in the Russian mountains where people don't really look because it's too goddamn cold to look outside. I'm not saying 100% without a doubt that it's aliens, but I'm not saying it's not 100% without a doubt it's not aliens, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. Look into this case yourself. Let me know what you think. Grumbler at mail.com, graveyardgrumblerpodcast. You know, I, it's, I mean, it sucks that these people had to die, but what's worse is that all this is, is sort of being covered up. All of this is not something that is, is being widely discussed at the time. Then in 1980, only parts of shit was being released. Mm, there's something there. There's something wrong there. Let's, you know, j just say, hey, it was aliens. Let's get on with it and let's move on. Aliens. <laughs> I'm going to wrap up the show there. I appreciate everyone for tuning into the show. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I'm going to try to do another episode next week, depending on my work schedule. I've been working like crazy. 
And I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to me from all around the world. I keep getting my updates on where I'm at and, and I'm, I want to appreciate or give a shout out to the countries that, that are listening to me all across the world. It means so much to me. Thank you very, very much for listening to my podcast. And as always, good morning, good day, good night, goodbye. This is the end, this is the end, this is the end. You just friend, 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 friend. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Grumbler.